Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 115, Revelation, the New Jerusalem. And in this episode, what I would like to do is talk about the New Jerusalem, the holy city, and how it is described in the last two chapters of Revelation. Now, these last two chapters are all about this holy city New Jerusalem. But what I want to do on this episode is just pull out three insights about the city, about the way it's described, about its size, about what it looks like, and be able to give you some insights into the Old Testament, some insights into the nature of the church, and why it is that Revelation chooses these images to describe the New Jerusalem. And it's a really exciting episode to me. I have thought of at least four or five, but I've decided to split these up into several episodes. Um, Life is busy for me, and because it is, I I like to do the research when I can and then share with you in weeks where I know I'm going to be particularly busy. That way I don't have to skip a week or, or not be able to offer you something. And so my research this week, I've seen at least four or five things that I wanted to talk about, but I decided we'll just talk about three of them this week. And then I'm going to go on vacation and release a buy the book episode while I'm gone so that I won't have any more preparation for that week. And then when I return, we'll wrap up the last several images that John uses and what that means ultimately for us as Christians. And so I offer to you just the first three insights about this new Jerusalem, and I think you'll be encouraged by what we talk about. So let's just get right into it. As we begin this week's episode, I want you to realize that the reason John spent so much time describing the New Jerusalem is because it is in fact a city, which is also a people, which is also a bride, which is also a temple or a building, and it ultimately serves the purpose for which the whole book was written. Um, And if we go all the way back to the beginning of Revelation, You remember when we looked at the specific address to each of the seven churches, they were all given an exhortation to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes, or to the one who is victorious. And I remember sharing early on in Revelation that that the thrust of this book is promises are made to those who faithfully witness to the Lamb. And this promise was captured in this word, to the one who conquers, to him who conquers. And then, of course, when we got to chapter 5 in Revelation, Revelation waits till chapter 5 to actually define what conquering looks like. What does faithful witness mean? Well, we had a lot of ideas of what that might mean, but Jesus, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb, defines for us precisely what conquering means. And so right out of the gate in Revelation 21, Right after describing this new Jerusalem, this holy city, this bride coming down out of heaven from God, God wiping away every tear from every eye, there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, not mourning like when the sun rises, but mourning like people weeping. Um, There will be no more sadness, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then John introduces us to the presence of God, and we talked about this in one of our last 
episodes about this being one of the main thrusts of the point in the end, God, as well as in the beginning. But John says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I'm sorry, not John. John is saying, but he's telling us what God himself is saying. And so let me, let me back up here to verse six in Revelation 21, um, verse five, rather. It says, he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now that's significant. Because within the book of Revelation itself, we were told repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3 about the one who conquers will and were given descriptions of what they would receive if they remained faithful. Well, walk yourself through the entire book of Revelation, all the temptations, all the, um, the uh, allure to trusting in empire or worshiping idols or thinking that God is one way when in fact he's something very different. And the call for the church to be faithful, the call for Jesus to offer his followers rewards for their conquering, well, here we go. Jesus is a man of his word. He's always been a man of his word. And now when the very presence of God is going to come, when his name is going to be written on people's foreheads, when they are going to see him face to face, when he's going to give them a white robe, all of the things that were promised in chapters two and three to the faithful Christians spread throughout Asia Minor show up in Revelation 21 and 22. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And so all the elements and the themes that are being woven together here all center around the Lord being with his people. And so as John is describing this heavenly city, keep that in mind because he tells us that the heavenly city is the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of the lamb. And John doesn't seem to make too much of a distinction here. He seems to indicate that it is always about people. And so the very first thing that I want to bring to your attention about this city is to look at it as a city in contrast to Rome that self-identified as the eternal city. Um, I'm just going to read for you a, a quote here from Eugene Boring from his commentary. It, it, it's absolutely excellent. And he simply says that this picture of the New Jerusalem also reflects much of the Hellenistic and Roman aspirations for the ideal city, as well as Herodotus's description of the actual Babylon and Rome's proud claim to be the eternal city, as found on Roman coins and inscriptions from John's time. Cities constructed by human beings, even on the magnificent scale of Babylon or Rome, are at best only fragmentary realizations of divine reality and at worst, idolatrous expressions of human pride. Babylon, Rome, if you will, wanted to exalt itself as the ideal city. 
as the place that was the eternal city, the city that would never die. And therefore, any empire who chooses to do this, I think it's helpful for us to realize, and and I'm thankful for what Eugene Boring says, because he doesn't just paint the negative side, um, that it's an idolatrous expression of human pride. That is true. But he also says that at their best, they are only fragmentary realizations of divine reality. And so what's happening is people are attempting to produce good and sometimes right things, but when they do it, what is right and good in their own eyes, or as the Old Testament refers to it, and as Christopher Wright alluded to when I had my buy the book conversation with him about here are your gods, when these are things that are the work of human hands, they tend to get elevated into this position of idolatrous expressions Um, of human pride. But the attempts themselves aren't necessarily wrong. It's just what place do we elevate those things to? And I get into lots of conversations. Um, I have several members of my church, some of whom um, have very different views than me on how we or he and I or however look at, let's say, the nation of America. And if you've listened to this podcast before, I I don't have a problem critiquing things about America. He tends to look at it from a slightly different angle, and he sees lots of good in the history of the nation and in the history of our country. And I think this kind of idea is helping me to understand how people can look at it in one of two ways. There's a really fine line between when a nation expresses its own you know, desire to be good and right and when it turns inward and begins looking at itself and patting itself on the back as being the true and right expression of all that is good in the world. So when a nation or when a king or when a person or anybody puts forth that kind of energy toward doing what is good and right, the question is always going to become what we saw way back at the Tower of Babel, Let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. That's the key. The attitude shift and the cultural shift that takes place the moment you decide as human beings, we can accomplish tremendously great things in the world. But when we then look at those things, and we acknowledge our own greatness as a result of what we've produced, that's when it becomes idolatrous. That's when it becomes destructive. And that's entirely what John's been teaching us about Babylon and about Rome all through the book of Revelation. And so that's just it. Babel was mankind's very first attempt to make a name for themselves in opposition to the name that God is happy to make for man. In fact, that's the root of the promise that the Lord God makes to Abram in the very next chapter of Genesis, in chapter 12. He says to him, I will make your name great. And so it's it's as if John is trying to make sure we know God's ways are always better. And in the end, God's ways actually bless man far better than man's efforts ever could That's a reality that the church needs to start believing again, and that's the way we need to speak to our society about God. 
It is not that he is here to ruin what it is that they might otherwise think is a perfectly acceptable path forward. It is that his ways and his goodness ultimately bring about the very good that people think they're bringing about by their own actions. And yet he manages to serve and bless humans better than humans can. And that's not often the way God's thought about. And I think we need to try to correct that. And so ultimately, what's happening here with this city is that um, it, it's being contrasted with Rome, the eternal city. In fact, in a little bit, we'll get into the description, um, or I could just jump to it right now, I guess, as I'm, as I'm looking through. Oh, you know what? I'm going to get there in just a second. That's number three. I forgot about that. So let me, let me just start there. That's the end of number one. Um, it's the city of God versus uh, Rome, the eternal city. Um, there's a contrast here. And that's really what John is trying to lay out for us by even the way he describes it. He is showcasing even what many Romans would have considered to be the ideal city. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to shows up in Revelation 21 uh, verses 19 to 20. And that is this list of jewels that are in the wall of this city. And so in verse 19 of Revelation 21, I know we're skipping quite a bit and I'll, I'll keep going back and forth um, throughout these chapters, but it says the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, I know what always gets brought to the surface is, oh, we're going to walk on streets of gold, and it's going to be this rich and shiny place, and, and so people will imagine pictures of streets that are not brick or not pavement um, or even dirt, but rather gold, and it shines, and we're going to walk on them. That's not what John's point is here. In fact, if you listen to this very lengthy description of these 12, and don't, don't miss that, there are 12 jewels being described here. These are the exact same jewels used to describe what the priests were to wear in the tabernacle all the way back from Exodus chapter 28. In fact, when the priests themselves would wear this breastplate, we are told that each one of these jewels represents one of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. They are representative. The beauty inherent in all of these jewels represents the beauty and the diversity of the people of God. And they are, of course, are representative. They are, of course, priests themselves to represent God to the world and to stand before between the world and the Lord God. And so the priest, um, I think this was episode 27 of my podcast, which is a personal favorite of mine, and that is priests in need of a priest, where we looked at Exodus 32 and how Aaron functioned as a priest when the people needed a priest and how Moses functioned as a priest when the people needed a priest. And then to ask ourselves the question, which kind of priest, which kind of um, person standing between us and God, would we want to represent us, a Moses or an Aaron, particularly as the people themselves had just been called by God to become a kingdom of priests? 
So Israel needed a priest to be for them and to them what they were supposed to be for and to the rest of the world. And this is ultimately how this works when we acknowledge Jesus as our high priest. We need Jesus to be for us what Jesus calls us to be for the world, both individually and as a community. And so looking at the city and the walls of the city, the foundations being structured out of these very jewels, the jewels that once decorated the garment of the high priest, now decorate the entire city where the kingdom of priests will reign with their God forever. Do you see what what John is doing? John has taken a small breastplate in the book of Exodus that has described the people of God that the priest, the one priest, would represent before the Lord. And now John has blown that up to big time proportions, showing us not just a priest who is walking into the Holy of Holies to represent the 12 tribes of Israel before the Lord, but rather the entire city is the place where the kingdom of priests now dwell. How how many times in Revelation... Have we heard the idea of the kingdom of priests surface? It surfaced a lot. They wear robes. They've got palm branches in their hands. That's who and what the kingdom of priests, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation are commissioned to worship the Lord, right? To work the ground and keep it, to serve and to guard it, to cultivate it and to preserve it. These are all priestly functions. And when when Paul in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 3 and in 2 Corinthians 3 and Peter in 1 Peter 2 all refer to the church as a kingdom of priests, he's getting at this same idea. And so now we simply have a city, not something that we are literally meant to look for, like walking down New York City and seeing a blue and a green and a pink and a red, you know, colored glistening in the light. No, this is a description of the people. And again, what used to be just individual stones on the breastplate of one priest is now decorating the entire city, which is the entire group of the kingdom of priests. That's how John is describing this scene. And it's just beautiful. And and I, I want to tie in um, here a little bit because we're, what we're dealing with now that the lamb is part of this um, establishment and the 12 disciples that the lamb has called in when Paul is talking in Ephesians chapter 2 about the church being built up let me let me read for you what Paul himself says and then I just want to share with you what Revelation says and see that John and Paul are doing something really similar. So Ephesians 2, a simple to understand passage in some sense, but also one that's um, quite complex and quite rich. Paul says, "Then so then you are no longer aliens, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this is one of the richest explanations in the New Testament of how the people, the church, can also be a building, a temple. And notice what Paul does. He says that this household of God is built 
on the foundation of the apostles, right? The 12 apostles, but also of the prophets. So what I love about what Paul is doing is he's saying the church is built upon the apostles, New Testament followers of the Lamb, and the prophets, Old Testament followers of the Lord. So for Christians to think that, oh no, we are just New Testament people, well, not according to Paul, we're not. We are built on the foundation, the foundation that the apostles and prophets laid is the foundation on which the church is built. And smack dab in the middle, he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is a cornerstone and the church are living stones. This is how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. We, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So, so this idea of house or structure or building or city, Paul uses these, Peter uses these, Jesus uses these interchangeably to describe the people. But I wanted to draw your attention to the idea that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So New Testament followers, Old Testament followers, they come together in the person of Jesus and the church is born. Well, in Revelation 12, I'm sorry, Revelation 21, verses 12 and 13, listen to the way John also describes the city. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, do you hear what John is doing? John grabs for two images, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel... Old Testament people of God, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, New Testament people of God. Listen to what Peter's or um, Paul says, right? The apostles and the prophets. What does John say? The 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. This is the corporate communal people of God. Old Testament people, New Testament people brought into one through the Lamb, who, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, is the cornerstone. This is the image. It's being produced over and over. And I'm just going to jump right out and say this. I don't remember if I've said this before, but since I just like to talk to you, I'll just say it again. These themes come back full circle because I've been fascinated with the book of Revelation for over 10 years. And as a result, I have been able to see things back in the Old Testament that ultimately push us forward to this moment. Um, but these kinds of insights are just real. They're always real. And the idea of the people being a temple takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, when the Lord God um, brought order out of chaos, brought stability, and more or less conquered the chaos. And then as was the ancient Near Eastern custom, the, 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 the reigning king who came in and, and brought order and peace and extended his empire into chaotic lands, they would build a temple and erect an image of the God that they believe just brought order out of the chaos. 
And then when you went into that temple, you would see the representation of the God who gave order and you would um, worship him there. Well, the Garden of Eden legitimately functions as that very thing, except instead of it being a small temple over a select plot of land, the garden in Eden was God's temple that he established over the whole world. And so in Eden, instead of, instead of the people erecting a temple in honor of their God and then putting an image of their God in the temple, in Genesis 1 and 2, God himself sets up the temple, Eden, and a garden there, and then God himself puts his image in the temple so that these people can now rule over and steward over the area that the Lord God just subdued, i.e., the entire world. This is what's being described in Genesis 1 and 2, and it has come all the way back around again by the time we get to Revelation 21. And so what I want to draw your attention to now is not just the colors of this city and not just the way its foundations are described by being apostles and prophets, the same way Paul does, but the third thing I want to point out is that the city itself, the holy city, the new Jerusalem is a cosmic temple. In Revelation 21, verse 16, it says this, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now that final little sentence in that verse its length and width and height are equal is really what I want to talk about here in point three. If you try to imagine a city that is 12,000 stadia and in modern equivalent, this would be roughly 1,380 miles. So um, if you were to lay this out on a map, for our purposes, as many of my listeners happen to reside in America, this is about half of the width of the United States in terms of size. So you've got a square here. You've got north to south. It's um, 1,380 miles. You've got east to west. It's 1,380 miles. But there's this strange little element added to it. And it says that its length and its width and its height are equal. Now, if you've ever flown in an airplane, you know that most commercial jets, I mean, I don't think are flying more than a couple of miles above the ground and it looks like you're so far away. But when you think about that in terms of horizontal distance, it's, well, you know, it's across town or whatever. Well, here a city is being described as having the same length and width and height. Well, you certainly don't want to go literal on this description because, my goodness, if you had a city that was 1,380 miles straight up, you would be in such a part of the stratosphere that nobody would be able to breathe. Like, this is not how and where people live, right? That, that doesn't work like that. And that would be missing the point. Because you and I will know that even though John tells us that the city lies four square, we know if you're good at all with geometry, that when an object's length and width and height are the same, well, you have a perfect cube 
that's what you have. It's a, it's a piece of dice. Or if you've got, you know, funny ice cube trays or, or something like that, you might have perfect cubes and, and, um, or a Rubik's cube or so, something to that effect. I mean, you might have them as decorations in your house or things like that, but you can picture something like this. This is what John's describing. But remember, Revelation is bringing the whole Bible full circle. It's bringing all of the themes together. And believe it or not, there is a place in the Old Testament that is described as a perfect cube. In fact, it's the only place in the Old Testament that's described as a perfect cube. And it is the Holy of Holies in the temple. Let me read it for you from 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20. It says, the inner sanctuary, this is how it is being described. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Now, this is the Holy of Holies. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided between very, very thick curtains that only the high priest was capable of entering, and that only one time per year. The mercy seat where the Lord's presence was believed to rest on top of the Ark of the Covenant, this was the Holy of Holies. This was a place where not just anyone could come. This was a place that only the high priest could enter and once, only once per year. This place housed the presence of God. And so this is why in Revelation 21 verse 22, John sees no temple. It says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. You see, what John is describing here is the entire city and not just the Holy of Holies, the entire city is filled with God's presence. That's what makes it the new Jerusalem. That's what makes it the holy city. That's what makes it, we're recognizing now, this is filling the entire world. And if we back out of our own understanding here, since John was not an American and John did not think about America, it had even been discovered yet, this was actually as large as the known world in John's time. 1,380 miles cubed. Now think about that. That's the entire Roman Empire. As far west as anybody could imagine, as far north, as far south, as far east. And the idea here in the way John's describing it, again, not only, it, it's not coincidental, right? He uses 12,000. Well, 12 are the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament, 12 apostles of the Lamb, New Testament, 1,000. That being 10 times 10 times 10, it's a perfect cube once again, but 1,000 is 10 cubed. 10 is complete, whole, um, functioning, thriving. The 144,000 that we saw in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 is just 12 times 12 times 1,000. Are, are you hearing the symbols? It's Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, 12 tribes. New Testament, 12 apostles of the Lamb times a thousand, 144,000. It's the full range of the people of God. What people of God? The people of God that are the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of the lamb. 
These are symbolic terms. They're constantly used to refer to the same idea. And so what John is communicating by dropping on us a city that is 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia long, and 12,000 stadia high is he is declaring the new Jerusalem fills the entire known world. That is what makes the new Jerusalem a place worth arriving at. This is what I'm trying to get at when I say the presence of God will be there. God will dwell with his people. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the picture. This is the image. What makes the new Jerusalem so glorious is that God himself will be there. Like he once dwelt with the man and the woman in the garden, the man and the woman failed to cultivate and keep. They failed to preserve, but to work the ground and to spread that environment across the face of the earth. Well, now that environment is spread across the face of the earth. The faithful witnesses to Jesus, the church has made disciples of all nations And it is all of those nations who now come and represent God dwelling, functioning, and fully thriving with his people, not just his Old Testament Jerusalem or Old Testament Israel, and not just um, people who you, you happen to think believe exactly like you. The goal is that everyone from every tribe, nation, language, and people would be brought into the presence of God and to the Lamb. And so these are ways that John is describing this scene. He's doing it thematically. He's doing it symbolically. He's doing it metaphorically. And he's doing it apocalyptically. He's not here describing for you and for me, oh, exactly what quote unquote heaven is going to look like. And I've seen people go on one or two sides here. People will either disembody the whole reality and make it all spiritual and misty and angelic and we're going to float around. Or they'll make it so earthly that we imagine we could reproduce that here. Well, I think both are errors. I think we have glimpses of what the end will be, but we will never fully see it functioning that way until we ultimately arrive in the, at, the, at the new Jerusalem. But the call for the church, I think, is to recognize that because that end point is so sure based on who Jesus is as the Lamb, that by faith we can live out that reality even though that reality isn't happening here. So Christians are those who are called to live as if that end is really going to be that way and we're willing to sacrifice everything that everyone else on the earth is not willing to sacrifice in order to help bring it to that point. And so that's what I wanted you to see. I I wanted you to see that the city of God, as it's described here, is actually in contrast to Rome, the eternal city, quote unquote, and that being not eternal, whereas God's city actually is. And it's the best version of anything that Rome could have ever hoped to accomplish. Only amazingly enough, God does not have to oppress people in order to cause other people to thrive. That is something that God alone knows how to do that man has never figured out. Man has a terrible reputation and a terrible past for thinking that advancement is really being made 
while leaving other people to rot on the sidelines or literally stepping on other people in the name of advancement. It's a terrible excuse. It's a terrible representation of what the Lord God will actually provide. And so that's one of the first things we see when we look at the New Jerusalem is how it is contrasted with the way Rome attempts to bring about the quote-unquote eternal city. And then secondly, I wanted you to see that the list of jewels in the wall and on the foundations are just blown up proportions of what the priest himself used to wear to represent the people of God. It's the same thing, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God. For what purpose? Number three, to make the entire world a cosmic temple, a perfect cube where God himself dwells with his people. He will be our God and we will be his people. That is what the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of the lamb is after. We are priests. We've created, we've been created to be priests. We fell from that role, fumbled our way through life, trying to do it correctly and had to have Jesus come, become our priest, represent us before God and God to us, reorient our hearts and minds around who God is and who we were created to be both of which we see perfectly defined in the person of Jesus, our great high priest. And then he establishes and roots us in him to such an extent that we are now capable of becoming the kingdom of priests that the Lord God always wanted his people to be, who faithfully represent him to the world and represent the world back to God. That's what John's describing in these last several chapters. I am very excited for what we're going to talk about the next time, but that is all I want to give you for this time. Again, as I shared in my introduction, I'm going on vacation next week right after Easter. Very excited about that, and I want to just check out, and I plan to do that. But I had a conversation a week and a half ago with Sandra Richter on uh, her book, Stewards of Eden. And I'm very eager to share that conversation with you next week. So be looking for that. And then when we return, we'll look at several more themes that surface in the last couple of chapters of Revelation. And then I've been praying through where I think we might go next. And I think Jesus is leading me in a couple of directions. So I'm excited for that. I, uh, again, love to hear from you. Some of you have listened to every one of these episodes and Kudos to you because that's a lot of episodes. And some of you have found the podcast through a by the book episode, or you found it through just one or two of the Revelation episodes. And again, I'm just thankful. I'm, I'm thankful for you. Um, I, I share this frequently, but this podcast is really an outlet for me. It has given me a chance to work through my own thoughts and my own uh, beliefs. And to do it with you has been so much more fun than trying to figure it out on my own. And so I'm thankful for each of you. I'm thankful when you uh, reach out and just say, hey, this episode was helpful or hey, I'm confused by this. What do you think about this? Um, Love those kinds of interactions. And so I'll always invite you to find me on Facebook. You can message me there through Messenger or or email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thank you so much for those of you that have given me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. And if you haven't yet done that, I I would ask you, that would be a, a major blessing to me. 
if you would get on one of those apps and just leave me a rating or a review or both so that others are capable of finding the podcast too on different search engines and things like that. So thankful for so much for each of you. I hope you have a wonderful Holy Week as we celebrate Maundy Thursday, tomorrow, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday morning. What a what a glorious time. I'm very thankful to be um, in a church where we celebrate that um, as a tradition and hope to to do that forever because it's one definitely worth celebrating. So I hope you all have a great week and I'll talk to you next time.